our field does. But I think by the end of my talk today, you might have a better idea because I want to give you one of the best, neatest, most interesting theories that social psychology has to offer. And unlike a lot of the things that you might learn in psychology which are interesting and useful, this is something that you can take away with you when you walk out of this room and live with and learn from forever. You know when you see optical illusions. Optical illusions are so fascinating, but you can't do very much about an optical illusion. What I'm going to talk to you about is a mental illusion, a cognitive illusion, but it's something that we can do something about. So let me start with a story for you. I got a wonderful letter from a friend of mine who had read our book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And she said, I want to tell you this story about my little girl. She said she was eight years old, and I was helping her practice the piano for her recital. And so I sat down with her at the piano, and normally I put her you know, make sure her fingers are in the right position to begin, you know, the first song. And this time she wouldn't let me help, and so she moved her hands one note off. Okay? And then she played the whole piece through consistently with every note wrong. <clears throat> so at the end of it, I said, honey, you know, um, see if you had just listened to me, I could have... Mommy, she said. I made no mistakes. You listened wrong. <laughs> this is the problem we are up against, as you will see. So I'd like to tell you a story that profoundly influenced me when I was in the ninth grade. We had a wonderful science teacher named Jules Crane who loved science, and he wanted us to understand why he loved science so much, and he wanted to teach us how scientists think. So he told us a story. In the years between 1841 and 1847 in Vienna, hospitals everywhere were facing a terrible epidemic of women who had come to the hospitals to deliver their babies and who were dying in childbirth, purple fever. This epidemic was causing the deaths of about 15% of the women who came to these hospitals. And at the epidemic's peak in one month, one-third of the women who came to the hospital to deliver their babies were dying. Three times the rate of the women who were being attended by midwives. What was causing these deaths? A Hungarian physician named Ignaz Semmelweis came up with a hypothesis that he thought might be the reason. He noticed that doctors were coming to the delivery room straight from the morgue, where they had been doing autopsies on the bodies of the women who had died the day before. Now, no one knew about germs in those days, but Semmelweis thought maybe these doctors are carrying what he called a morbid poison on their hands from the autopsies to the bedside of his, their patients. So Semmelweis came up with a simple intervention. He told his own medical students, wash your hands in a chlorine antiseptic solution before you attend these women in labor. Now you see the results here of what Semmelweis found. 
Those zigzags on the left, those are deaths from childbed fever. Notice at the introduction of the chlorine hand wash, deaths plummeted. Plummeted. The women stopped dying. Now, Mr. Crane told us this story to illustrate scientific thinking. You have a hypothesis. This was, might, be, might be the cause. You come up with an intervention. If you're lucky, it's successful, and you've learned something important. But I guess that I was an incipient social psychologist at the time because I remembered that Mr. Crane telling us something else in this story that just horrified me. And it was that Semmelweis's fellow doctors did not say to him, Say, Ignash, thank you for this fantastic discovery. Way to go, Ignash. Let's hear it for you. They said, in the equivalent language of the day, oh, sod off, Ignash, and you take your stupid theories with you. You're telling us that we're killing our patients because we haven't washed our hands? How insulting. How dare you? And his fellow colleagues did not wash their hands. <clears throat> now, I asked Mr. Crane about this at the time, and he said, oh, well, you see, this was in the bad old days before the scientific method and before everybody understood the importance of science, blah, blah, blah. But then I grew up and became a social psychologist, and I learned that the Semmelweis problem lives and lives all around us. In Macon, Mississippi, Kennedy Brewer an African-American laborer was sentenced to death and imprisoned for 15 years for the rape and murder of a three-year-old girl. Finally, he was released on bail after a DNA test showed that his semen did not match that of the rapists. Did the district attorney, with the wonderful name Forrest Allgood, say, thank God that we have finally found a way to correct this horrible miscarriage of justice and find the real perpetrator, the real rapist and murderer of this little girl? No. Allgood, who had originally tried the case and claimed that Brewer was the only assist, uh, assailant at the time, now decided the DNA evidence was irrelevant and that Brewer would be retried. If he wasn't technically the rapist, well, so what? He was probably working with another man who he was aiding and abetting, who was, may have been the rapist, but certainly he was there at the same time. The guys who work on the Innocence Project in the United States call this the unindicted co-ejaculator theory of rape. Before, we think there's only one perpetrator, but afterward, we're still not going to admit the DNA evidence showing this guy's innocence. What does it take? Evidence of fewer deaths if you wash your hands, evidence of DNA that you've put the wrong guy in prison, and it is still not enough for people to say, I was wrong. Thank God for this information. Now, what I want to argue with you here is this. All of us, all of us, have been in Semmelweis's position unable to persuade our friends, our family, our loved ones of something we know for sure is right. And we have also all been in the position of Semmelweis's colleagues minimizing and dismissing evidence that we don't like. 
Here's how it works, for example. Here was an adorable little study published a few years ago in the Journal of Nutrition. Don't you love this study? Chocolate contains antioxidants that have been associated with a decreased risk of heart disease and stroke. Hello, is everybody awake? Is this not the cutest finding you've heard all morning? Don't you love this? Have you brought your emergency chocolate with you? Look how good chocolate is for us. I love this study so much that I ignored the next paragraph. Good for you. You've all been well scientifically trained, and you understand why this study was not maybe so good since it was funded by Mars. Okay. Now, I remember reading this and thinking, I don't care. I'm sorry. I don't care. I mean, so what if there was no, you know, preliminary double point? I don't care. I like the chocolate finding, and that's that. Well, chocolate, okay, chocolate is not a major study. But what happens when the research questions something that we deeply believe is related to our health and what we eat, but we're wrong. For example, here's a book cover by Gary Taubes, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And I remember when I started reading this book thinking, what a stupid cover. This is a stupid cover. Everybody knows whole wheat bread is good and butter is bad. By the time you finish reading this book, you will know it's the bread that's bad and the butter that's good. Talk about a surprising finding. Our culture has been based for 40 years on the belief that eating fat makes you fat, right? That eating fat is bad for you. It clogs up your arteries, it causes heart disease, it does all kinds of terrible things, and better to have a low-fat diet. Has anybody noticed that low-fat diets have not actually had any influence at all whatsoever on the obesity or heart disease rates in America? Did that evidence persuade anybody? Well, look at this. Here was a major study of, look at this, nearly 350,000 people, which found no evidence that dietary saturated fat is associated with an increased risk of coronary heart disease or coronary vascular disease. Isn't that interesting? And by the way, do you suppose that Dean Ornish and the entire low-fat health contingent in America has said, thank you for this really important findings. We will now change our dietary recommendations today. Not so quickly. <clears throat> so here's the deal. I want to tell you why it is that so many of us find it so difficult, so uncomfortable, to face findings that we don't like. Why it is so hard for us to think critically about the things we don't want to think critically about. Um, this motivational mechanism that underlies the reluctance to be wrong, to change our minds, to admit mistakes, is called cognitive dissonance. And it is the discomfort we feel when any two cognitions, or ideas, or a cognition and a behavior contradict each other. This is the classic paradigm. The classic example is smoking. People know smoking cigarettes is unhealthy. If you smoke cigarettes, you will be in a state of cognitive dissonance. John Stewart described this once on The Daily Show as when an environmentalist 
buys an SUV. He said, might as well be filling his gas tank with cognitive dissonance. That's exactly how it is. This is the key thing to understand about dissonance. It's uncomfortable. And it, we are as motivated to reduce dissonance as we are to eat when we're hungry or drink water when we're thirsty. It's motivating. It's uncomfortable. Therefore, a smoker has to do one of two things. The smoker has to quit, or the smoker has to justify smoking. Okay, I won't live as long, but uh, I'll be thin, <laughs> or whatever smokers do. There was just a study of um, pregnant women who smoke, and we know how harmful smoking is, particularly for pregnant women. So what did they do? They reduced the number of cigarettes per day, because that will be less harmful to my fetus. <clears throat> Excuse me. So here's a quick example of dissonance that came from a reviewer of our book on Amazon. He wrote this, a longtime friend of mine, a police officer, unfriended me on Facebook because I share posts from the Innocence Project about the exoneration of men and women who have spent decades in prison for crimes they did not commit. They were actually innocent. My friend could not or would not believe or even conceive that they could be innocent because that would mean the system of which he is a part and to which he is committed failed. The collision of his mental narrative with contradictory facts is cognitive dissonance. Yes, exactly, this reader got it. And now let me underscore this, that although this friend did not want to hear contradictory evidence, a far better way of reducing dissonance, as I will argue, is how to accept dissonance, accept critical information, and make your own life and your own profession better as a result. In the last 50 years, dissonance theory has been supported by literally thousands of experiments in cognitive and social psychology and neuroscience. In fact, cognitive dissonance has been found in little kids and even in monkeys. If you go out to buy a car, you will be at your most open-minded. You will decide between the SUV and the Prius, and you will find all the good and bad things about each of those decisions. But after you make a decision, your mental gates will shut, and now you will only pay attention to the information that shows you how smart you were about the choice you made and how right you were not to buy the car you didn't buy. That mechanism turns out to be apparent in children and in monkeys. You give monkeys a choice between treats in a red box and a blue box, they arbitrarily choose the blue box, and ever after they're going to decide blue is the way to go. <laughs> okay. So there's something beneficial about having a win-stay philosophy for us. A friend of mine told me about taking her little girl, aged two and a half, to the park. She wrote, she had a bundle of stickers I bought for her. I suggested she offer a sticker to another little girl in the park. At first, my granddaughter looked inclined to do so, but then became shy and turned to me and said, that little girl doesn't like stickers, Grandma. Cognitive dissonance at two and a half. You see how it works? I'm a good little girl. I would be, I'm a very generous good little girl. I would share my stickers. But if that child doesn't like 
stickers, then I remain a good little girl and I keep my stickers. <clears throat> and you know, of course, nowadays people think that if you aren't doing brain research, you aren't really doing science. One of my favorite very cute studies was somebody came up with this idea. They, they had a person give the identical lecture to two different audiences, but in one audience they showed pictures of a brain, and in the other, no pictures of a brain. And everybody thought the lecture with the brain was more scientific. So now, I don't go anywhere without my brain. <laughs> I want you to know, cognitive dissonance has been tracked into the brain, and in fact, we find that, <laughs> that parts of the brain, of the emotion circuits, really, <laughs> really will become agitated when we are in a state of cognitive dissonance. When you're asked to process, for example, positive information about a political candidate you don't like. You just don't like to do that. And when you finally get bad information about the candidate you don't like, your brains will relax happily. <laughs> Dissonance theory has been supported by decades of research on the brain's cognitive biases. And in this, I want to give you three biases that are particularly relevant. The first bias is the bias that we are unbiased. I personally love this bias. Is that a cute bias or what? Okay. This is the belief, as the social psychologist Lee Ross puts it, we perceive things clearly as they really are. Any opinion I hold, because I hold it, must be reasonable. If it weren't, why would I hold an unreasonable idea? Therefore, if I can just get my opponents or my kids, or my parents, or my roommate, or my friends, to sit down here and listen to me so that I can tell them how things really are, they will agree with me. And if they don't, it's because they are biased. Is this an adorable bias or what? I'm telling you. Here's my next favorite one. This is the Lake Wobegon bias. This is the bias that we are smarter, better, kinder, cuter, and more competent, more ethical than average. 88% of all Americans think they are better drivers than average. The other 12% live in Los Angeles. Um, so, did I just say 11%? I did, didn't I? All right, never mind. I can add. There were studies done at two fundamentalist Christian colleges where the vast majority of the students thought they were humbler than average. <laughs> now you can see why this bias is so effective. It allows our self-esteem to bubble along happily and so forth, but of course it's not such a good bias when it keeps us from a little humility and a little correction. The third bias is the confirmation bias. Tattoo this one to your legs, folks. There's no more important bias for any human being to understand about how we operate in the world. The confirmation bias is the fact that we notice and remember information that confirms our beliefs, that keeps our beliefs consonant. We will notice, remember, keep, believe in, information that confirms our beliefs. And we will forget, we will overlook, we will minimize information that is dissonant or discrepant or that disconfirms what we believe. Here's how it works. Um, 
members of the, <clears throat> um, excuse me, sorry, it's thirsty. Um, uh, okay, members of security at, at airports are asked to keep track of suspicious-looking characters at airports who might be drug couriers. Drug couriers, write down, you know, who you think at the airport might be a drug courier. And here is the list. <laughs> Carried a small bag, large bag, off the plane first, no, off the plane last, overly protective of luggage, dissociated self from luggage, bought a coach ticket, bought a first-class ticket, one-way ticket, round-trip ticket, traveled alone. Tra Here's the point. Once the observer thinks you're a drug courier, anything you do confirms that belief. No disconfirming evidence here. If I think you look suspicious, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Wearing a red ribbon, wearing a pink ribbon, wearing no ribbon. Whatever you're doing confirms my belief. Now, my dear friend and colleague, Elliot Aronson, one of the greatest social psychologists living, advanced the theory of dissonance and tightened its focus by making it a theory of self-justification. His elegant experiments showed that we are most motivated to reduce dissonance when the information disputes how we see ourselves when it challenges a central belief, when it questions a story we have woven to explain our lives, when we do something that's inconsistent with our view of ourselves, we have two choices. We can change our self-concept. I guess I really did some, something that was idiotic, didn't I? Or we justify what we did. Now, this kind of self-justification is not the same thing as lying to other people to get off the hook. When you've done something that you know is wrong, unethical, immoral, corrupt, etc., you know what you've done, and you will perhaps lie to avoid paying the penalty. That is not what we're talking about. Dissonance reduction happens unconsciously to block ourselves from the awareness that we did anything wrong. It's unconscious mechanism that allows us to lie to ourselves in this way because most of us see ourselves as being competent, ethical, smart, and kind, and generous. Our efforts at reducing dissonance will be to preserve that self-image. I'm a kind person. You're telling me I hurt you? Well, you must have deserved it. It's your fault. You started this. What do two little kids say when you interrupt them from beating each other up? He started it. I'm a good little kid. I'm not aggressive. I'm not a bully. Therefore, if I've just beaten up this kid on the schoolyard, it must be because he started it. Now, the implications of this theory are huge, huge, because they show us that our problems aren't just from bad people who justify the bad things they do. They come from good people 
who justify the bad things they do to preserve their belief that they're good people. I'm going to say that one more time. Good people, that's us, who justify the bad things we do, the mistakes we make, the harms we inflict on others, in order to preserve our belief that we are good, competent, and kind. Semmelweis's fellow doctors were not wicked men who wanted their women patients to die. On the contrary, they were good men who saw themselves as compassionate, experienced, accomplished physicians. And precisely because they saw themselves as good physicians, they could not accept the evidence that what they were doing was causing the deaths of their patients. Forrest Allgood, other prosecutors in America, define themselves as the good guys. My job is the good guy. My job is to put the bad guys away. And now you're telling me that I, a good guy, have accidentally put a good guy in prison? Nah, he did something else bad. Believe me. It's not necessarily that they're corrupt or bad or evil. It's that they can't jostle their self-concepts of being good, expert, competent professionals. So what we have in dissonance theory is a theory of blind spots, of how and why we blind ourselves so that we fail to notice information that might make us question the wisdom of our beliefs. Our memories are distorted in a consonant direction. People remember voting for the winning candidate rather than the candidate they voted for. They remember giving more to charity than they really did. If you ask husbands and wives what percentage of the housework they do, the total will add up to far more than 100%. And so in this way, we like to keep our beliefs consonant with how we are now. <clears throat> and here, by the way, is an example from memory that's really important for all of you students. We distort our memories in ways that conform to our current beliefs about ourselves, the stories we tell now. That is more accurate than what actually happened then. In one study of teenagers, 14 and 15-year-olds who were brought into a laboratory with their parents and told to have a discussion about some aspect, some conflict that they were having with their parents, and then at the end of this argument, and some of those arguments got really heated, all of the kids had to evaluate how they felt at the time, how angry they were at their parents, what they thought about their parents. Okay? Now we come back five years later, and we ask them, what do you remember about that quarrel with your parents? And what do you suppose they found? The young people who had good, close attachments with their parents now remembered the argument as being far less angry and far less conflicted than they reported at the time. Whereas the young people currently in conflict with their parents misremembered the argument as being more intense more angry than they had reported at the time. When I say this kind of research is a humility control, 
We are all of us so sure that our memories are accurate always. Keep in mind, our memories will change to be consonant with what we believe now. I had an older half-brother whose stepfather, he always described his stepfather as being a real mean son of a bitch to him. It was always my, my stepfather treated me this way. He was never in the story. He never said, but I was a difficult, rebellious kid who never listened to him. The story was a one-way story. So, many discussions of dissonance describe it as a one-time thing. You buy a car, you support your choice of car, and done. But Elliot and I wanted to show something more important. What happens when a belief or a decision sets us off on a path that we might not have imagined for ourselves? So here's an example from an actual study, but the metaphor of the pyramid is something we think is really important, so I'm going to take a little time to explain this. Imagine that we have two students standing at the top of a pyramid in terms of their beliefs about cheating. They're very close in their views about cheating. They don't think it's a great thing. They know it's not a good thing to do. On the other hand, they don't think it's the worst crime in the world. Yeah, you know, cheating is cheating, okay? Now, they're taking a final exam. This final exam is crucial. If they don't get a good grade on this exam, no one will ever love them again in their lives, and even their cat will abandon them. This is sort of how we think about final exams, right? This is it. This is the most important exam ever that will happen to me. And now they draw a blank on a crucial question. Ah! <laughs> I can't think of the answer to this, and I'm going to fail, and it's going to be horrible. When suddenly, a classmate in front of them, that one with the huge, beautiful, clear handwriting, makes her answers available. You have a split second to decide, cheat or don't cheat. What are you going to do? And in that split second decision, one of them cheats and copies the student's answers, and the other says, no, I'm really not going to do this. It's not worth it for my view of myself. I'm not going to cheat, and does not cheat. Now, they have just taken one big step off the pyramid. And now, both of them are in a state of dissonance, meaning they must now change their attitudes about cheating to conform to their action. Therefore, the one who cheats will now justify cheating. Oh, it's not so unethical. Everybody cheats. It's a victimless crime. Besides, I need this grade. The one who didn't cheat will say, no, cheating is wrong. Everybody loses. It's not fair. We don't really know who knows what, and, you know, it's supposed to be a measure of how you do in this class. Okay? A week later, their views about cheating, and notice, not so long ago, they were pretty much next to door to each other in their views of cheating, and now, a week later, their views are completely polarized. The cheater will think, oh, please, it's really no big deal. In fact, I think everybody should cheat. How can we speed along cheating here at this university? And the one who resisted will be ready to expel cheaters or hang them upside down by their ankles. Now, this is what I want you to try to understand 
Once you're at the bottom of the pyramid, once you have taken a step, notice how much harder it will be to go back up. Because to go back up, you have to admit that that step you took was wrong. And so what happens each step of the way as you roll down this pyramid is that you become stronger in your conviction that it is okay to cheat. Okay to cheat. It will become harder and harder for you to change direction. Though you might originally have said, oh, I'll just do it this once, now you are far more likely to repeat it. In your lives, in your lives, throughout your lives, you will have many, many times when you will be at the top of a decision pyramid. When you will have to make an ethical decision, a job decision, a love decision, a, an attitude decision, a life choice decision. And some of those decisions will be easy and some of them will be more complicated. Some of them you'll really think about. Some of them you'll make an impulsive decision about. But whichever way you jump, you will then be motivated to justify the action you take. And now this is key. Because of the confirmation bias, you will stop noticing or looking for any information that you might have made the wrong decision. You will ignore evidence that you might be wrong or that there's a better way. And you will just be on now a path of action, justification, and further action that increases your commitment to the choice you made. It will get harder and harder for you to change your mind. We have seen this in the appalling story of vaccines um, and autism in this country, which began as a result of a fraudulent argument by Andrew Wakefield in 1998 that vaccines cause autism. They do not. Study after study after study after study has shown this. And yet, the people who promoted this view have yet to say, sorry world, we really were wrong. Sally Bernard, I love this. Its conclusions were not supported by the underlying data, as opposed to the overlying data, I guess. And Jenny McCarthy, who, as many of you may know, was the poster girl for vaccines causing autism, now has forgotten that that's what she did and the harm that she caused for so many years. see how we doing here. All right. <clears throat> so how this works, hmm. all right, how this works. Most people in most professions are people of integrity. They're not corrupt. They're not interested in selling out. But what we want to understand here are the ways in which external influences can lead us in one direction or another. So for example, in the case of medicine and uh, drugs and so forth, what's happened in our country over the last 25 years or so is that there has been a breakdown in the once firewall between researchers and industry. So now most drug research is funded by the pharmaceutical industry, as many of you may know. 
So what does this mean if you are a scientist, if you are a researcher, and you're doing a study of some drug, and uh, Big Pharma is funding you? Well, you see yourself as a researcher of integrity, a good scientist. You can't be corrupted by your funder. Well, with this problem, your funder has, wants you to get the results that they'd like you to get. So what happens if you do a study and you don't get the results that your funder wants? You don't get them. This drug isn't so effective. Maybe it's hazardous. Maybe it's harmful. Maybe it mm, just really isn't as good a drug as an older tried-and-true drug might be. What are you going to do with your new data? Let me show you. This is a study of um, 12 antidepressants um, submitted to the FDA for approval. A group of scientists were able to get all of the studies, all 76 studies that had been submitted to the FDA about these 12 antidepressants. And what you see here is a result of the studies that got positive findings about the benefits of antidepressants and that were subsequently published. So this looks pretty impressive. But the scientists wanted to know how many studies not funded by the pharmaceutical companies were also submitted to the FDA, and what did those studies find? Those are the studies that found harmful effects of the antidepressants being studied or no benefits at all. Those studies weren't published. So notice how here we have a situation where researchers with the best of intentions of the world, they're not corrupt in a, you know, here, I'm going to give you a little sack of money, go show me that Paxil is safe. And yet, thanks to the confirmation bias, and thanks to the rewards that you get when you get the findings that we want, there you have a truer picture. Some of you may know or may have heard about the effort on the part of the pharmaceutical companies to come up with a female Viagra. The pharmaceutical companies are so um, cynical and so crass in their marketing that they are now arguing to the FDA that it is sexist of the FDA not to have a drug for women. Okay. Never mind, the FDA says that these drugs aren't effective and don't work. Okay. Um, at best, one of these drugs has found that um, a woman is more likely to have three-fourths of an orgasm more per month if she takes one of these drugs. Don't ask. Don't ask. I don't know how they measure three-fourths. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to know that one. Okay. Um, and, of course, thanks to... Um, uh, you know, actually, it was Pfizer embargoed the results of its study of female Viagra for years because they got no results. There, you know, until finally an independent study of Viagra for women. <laughs> this was so cute. Found that 42% of the women given Viagra reported improved sexual functioning, and so did 45% of the women on a placebo which tells us what really might be working here. There was actually a very cute uh, article the other day in the Daily Beast by a woman who said she was going to try female Viagra with her partner, and she did, and it was just totally the most blissed out, wonderful experience of her total life. And then she realized she had taken an Aleve 
It's a little blue diamond-shaped pill, too, like Viagra. So you see, this is another reason why we need science. You see, the placebo effect, very important. Okay. Um, it's not just money, then, that creates a vested interest in a particular line of research. All we have to do is to take a position on some issue, medical, social, political, personal, and as soon as we do, we're going to feel the impulse to justify it intellectually and shut our mental doors. So it's a good thing to be committed passionately to our beliefs and our goals. Of course it is. We couldn't live without our beliefs and our passions and our commitments. But the goal from science is to help us hold those beliefs lightly enough so that if evidence eventually comes along showing that we're wrong, we can let it go. But I want you to understand how hard that is and how hard it was for me. I want to tell you a story in that respect. Um, what understanding dissonance teaches us is don't jump too fast off that pyramid. Don't jump too fast off that pyramid. And we have temptations to do that every day. Is that rape allegation true or false? Should we wait for some evidence? What a concept. Should we wait before we decide if some celebrity or hero or politician or somebody is guilty? Nah, let's not wait. Let's just burn the guy. Sometimes, you know, I mean, see, we live in a culture with, you know, a very fast news cycle and we're going to all want to jump to an answer. So let me tell you what happened to me. Many years ago in Los Angeles, the first of the daycare sexual abuse hysteria cases erupted in my city. This was a case that eventually began a national epidemic of allegations of children in daycare centers across the country being molested by their teachers. In Los Angeles, it was the McMartin Preschool. And all of us had a choice. Should we believe that Peggy McMartin, age 63, and her two grown children, who had been running a daycare center for 30 years, were molesting these children? Or should we be skeptical and say, well, I don't know, you know, people in America often get hysterical about children and, you know, sex abuse, and maybe there's a, something going on here. Should we believe, as social workers were telling us, children never lie? Which I think can only be said by somebody who doesn't know a child, wasn't, wasn't near a child, has never seen a child, or never had a child. Of course children lie. They lie all the time. They sit there with cookie crumbs on their faces and tell you they haven't eaten the cookie. Should we believe where there's smoke, there's fire? Or should we say, sometimes there's just smoke? Should we believe the children's story that there were underground torture chambers at the school? Although no child ever showed any physical evidence of being abused? Should we believe that these daycare teachers were taking the children on planes on a daycare teacher's salary? Now, I want you to know that I am embarrassed to this day that I initially believed the media coverage and thought these teachers were probably guilty. When Elliot and I were writing our book, he said something really powerful. He said, we sacrificed our skepticism on the altar of outrage. That's right. 
That's what we did. But I slid further down that pyramid than Elliot did. I wrote an op-ed for the Los Angeles Times. It was based on research that had been done at the time about how you interview children in these sex abuse cases. And it seemed to suggest to me that if you didn't kind of press children to admit that, you know, that they'd been touched, da 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 they weren't going to tell you the truth. Well, that's what I believed. Over time, as research accumulated, it became abundantly clear that children can be induced. See, it's not about lying. It's about telling something that children think the adults want them to say. And that children can be very easily induced to say something that happened when it didn't. Especially when the children are young, when they're repeatedly questioned, when they're threatened if they don't confess, when they're falsely told that all the other children said it happened. We didn't foresee at the time I wrote this how easily leading questions would turn into coercion. I remember sitting in an audience of forensic investigators, psychologists, scientists, as Stephen Cece, one of the great pioneers in the research on children's testimony, used this slide, as well as others, to describe how credulous and believing the media had been in accepting these allegations. In the more th embarrassing, dissonant, I'm a big skeptic, you know. Me, the big scientist. It's really uncomfortable, let me tell you. Now, in the more than 25 years of research on children's testimony, we have learned that one factor best predicts false allegations by children. And can you imagine what it is when the interviewer is blinded by the confirmation bias when the interviewer doesn't go into an interview to find out what happened, but rather to get the child to confess. When the interviewer thinks they know what happens, that's what they get. And it looks like this. Here's a transcript from uh, a case in New Jersey, the Kelly Michaels case, where the psychotherapist is interviewing the child in another one of these daycare cases. Therapist says, Does she, did she, that's the teacher, Kelly Michaels, did she drink the pee-pee? And the child says, please, that sounds crazy. I don't remember about that. I really don't. When it came time to testify, this is what the psychotherapist said in court. Are we registering this? In other words, the psychotherapist did not hear the child's denial. The therapist heard what she expected to hear. The defendant drank the pee-pee, and that's how she got crazy. Or how about this? Would you tell Ernie, the puppet? No. Oh, come on. Please tell Ernie. Please tell me. Please tell me so we can help you, please. Here, whisper it to Ernie. Did anybody ever touch you right there? No. Did anybody ever touch your bum? No. Would you tell Bert? They didn't touch me. Now this ladies and gentlemen, is one of the great questions in all of human interviewing. Who didn't touch you? <laughs> Nobody touched me! This child <laughs> is trying to be listened to. But of course, from the interviewer's standpoint, 
the child is in denial or can't admit it or is too frightened or blah, blah, blah. And so the, the adult will keep bludgeoning the child to admit that something happened when it didn't. Eventually, as research showed, if you keep interviewing children this way, they'll change their answer, not because they're telling you the truth, because they figure well, whatever it is you've been waiting to hear, you're not going to stop shouting at them until you tell them. So. so I regard this research on children's testimony as being as important as the importance of washing your hands if you deliver babies, as important as the evidence that vaccines do not cause autism, as important as the DNA evidence that has released hundreds, hundreds of innocent people in this country who had been in prison, some of them for decades. But I also understand from my own experience with the discomfort of dissonance, how hard it would be if you were one of those interviewers if you were one of those well-meaning social workers who believed that children never lie and who in your belief that you were being helpful ended up contributing to a hysterical epidemic in America that destroyed hundreds of lives and split thousands of families. Think what it would take for you to be able to say, I was wrong. <clears throat> now, but there's good news. Dissonance may be built into our mental wiring, but how we think about our mistakes, our wrong beliefs, is absolutely not. You don't get to justify holding on to a wrong belief by saying, it's in my brain. And here's why. Once we understand how this works, we can overcome it. Many years ago, the then Israeli Prime Minister, Shimon Peres, was thrown into dissonance when his friend Ronald Reagan accepted an invitation to lay a wreath at a cemetery in Bitburg, Germany, where 49 Nazi officers were buried. I invite you to consider how infuriating that action was, not, to many, not only to everybody in in Israel, but to many, many others who found this wildly inappropriate thing to do. But Perez was one of Reagan's great friends. So when reporters asked Perez what he thought of his good friend Ronald Reagan's actions at going to Bitburg, Perez said, when a friend makes a mistake, the friend remains a friend, and the mistake remains a mistake. In that observation is our antidote to dissonance. Because think of how we normally would do. Your friend makes a mistake. You either, to resolve the dissonance, you either end the friendship or you minimize the mistake. And Perez is teaching us to take a third way. A third way. You separate the two cognitions and evaluate them separately. In this way, friendships that might be ended are maintained. Mistakes that might be minimized are properly criticized and their perpetrators held accountable. We can remain loyal to our country, religion, political party, 
our friends and our family and understand that it is not dissonant, that is, disloyal, to disagree with policies or actions or beliefs that we find inappropriate, misguided, cruel, or immoral. It's our job as members of an identity that we hold dear to hold perpetrators accountable and to correct the actions of our group rather than to justify them as being the easiest route. And we can say of ourselves, when I, a decent, smart, kind, adorable person, make a mistake, I remain a smart, kind, good, decent person, and the mistake I made remains a mistake. Now, how do I remedy what I did and make sure I don't repeat it? Because without being able to do that, we'll take that sloppy, self-justifying route, not understand what we did wrong, not understand where we went off the rails on that belief about vaccines that's keeping us from vaccinating our own children. We'll be able to say, I was wrong about that, but it doesn't make me a foolish or stupid person. In fact, it makes me a smarter person because now I'm willing to learn from what I did wrong. Owning up to our mistakes leads to better, life-saving ideas. We want our doctors to wash their hands. We want advice about our health and what we eat to be based on the best available data. For scientists, for anyone who loves the quest for discovery and knowledge, being wrong is part of the process, and it is just as helpful as being right. That's the lesson we really need to learn. When Elliot and I wrote our book, I think we learned the truth about the important power of cognitive dissonance, not just from the research, but also from the stories of the women and men who were able to stop their slide down that pyramid and take responsibility for what they'd done. At the age of 65, the writer Vivian Gornick wrote an incredibly honest essay about her lifelong effort to balance love and work. She wrote, I'd written often about living alone because I couldn't figure out why I was living alone. Well, it was men, you know. Men didn't want to put up with me. I'm a writer, I have my own career, and these were sexist men, and, you know, they just couldn't accommodate to me. Now she realizes that answer was partly right and partly wrong. She wrote, she was, she wrote, much of my loneliness was self-inflicted, having more to do with my angry, self-divided personality than with those guys. The reality was, she wrote, that I was alone because I did not know how to live in a decent way with another human being. In the name of equality, I tormented every man who'd ever loved me until he left me. I called them on everything, never let anything go, held them up to accountability in ways that wearied us both. There was more than a grain of truth in everything I said, but those grains, no matter how numerous, need not have become the sand pile that crushed the life out of love.
That story moved me when I first read it to Eliot, and it moved him as well. And then he said, you know, what a great revelation for her to accept her part in her own life story. But how much better if she had been able to stop her slide down that pyramid when she was 25 and not 65. That's why he and I feel when we all of us understand the power of setting off in a direction in a way that doesn't teach us how to make corrections that we need to, if we learn how to avoid that, we can create a more powerful and beneficial way to live. Thank you all.